Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Well, welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. So we are coming again to you uh, from our uh, isolated location. So I am Ben Myers and my host is Steve Cameron. How's it going, Steve? Very good. Good to be back. Still at the work from home uh, setup, which is starting to wear on me a little bit, but uh, I'm surviving. Perfect. So uh, we have a guest today, all the way yeah. from down, all the way from downtown Toronto. Uh, why don't you uh, introduce your client? Yeah, for sure. So, as uh, for our listeners who are used to uh, the deep and uh, in-depth intros I've done in the past, uh, this gentleman needs no introduction, and I'm actually, in fact, going to let him introduce himself today. But uh, we're excited and uh, honored to have Mr. Brad Lamb joining us on the Tuck Podcast today. Welcome, Mr. Lamb. Well, thanks for having me. I'm very excited. <laughs> I, I can see that on your face, how excited you are. <laughs> we're excited to have you. I think there's a lot to, uh, to talk about. Obviously, in this COVID-19 uh, times, we uh, listen to going on, and I think your opinions are strong as to how we're dealing with it, and we look forward to getting into that. But before we do... Why don't you uh, give us a little introduction on yourself and um, how you got started in the industry and transition from uh, maybe even how you got into real estate in general and how you transitioned from being a real estate agent and broker into uh, into one of the uh, major players in the development uh, in the GTA. Uh, sure. So you know, I, I I was I've always been a sales guy. When I was a little kid, um, you know, I was the kid that. Uh, was very disciplined and had all the lawn contracts and the snow contracts, uh, you know, the eaves trough contracts. <clears throat> um, when I was very young, I, you know, sold popsicles and lemonade and anything I could, I could, I would build a little sales thing at the end of my parents' driveway. And I was the commerce guy selling everything. And I always had more money than all my uh, little friends because I was always taking their allowance from them. <laughs> I, I loved. I just loved that. I don't know why. I, I love the idea of coming up with something and and creating it and putting it out there and people buying it. And uh, I had magic shows, uh, all kinds of things. I had fairs. And as I as I as I got older, um, you know, I I, I um, got a job at a local kind of Loblaws type store at fifteen. Uh, I got a. You weren't actually allowed to do that at 15, but I got a work permit and uh, I got a job there and I worked there uh, through high school and it saved a lot of money. Um, and I, I got an understanding of, of, of saving money, how to make money, um, how to run little businesses at a very young age. Um, so I was kind of self-taught in that area. Um, and when I went to university, I went to Queens and I, I got an engineering degree. And um, in my uh, second or third year of university, I was in a house in the ghetto and small investors owned these houses. And we had like seven or eight students in the house, friends of mine and so on. And the house went up for sale just before we left for, spring, for the summer break. And I, I got intrigued to see you know, what that process was. People come in and I was never really aware of that business. I mean, my parents bought and sold houses, but I didn't get involved in it as a kid. And I started paying more attention to the process, asking 
the agent questions. And this house um, had an income of $850 and they were selling it for $50,000, $850 a month. So its income was, you know, uh, over $10,000 a year and the cost of the house was $50,000. And I very quickly realized that was a pretty good deal and it made some sense. So when I graduated, I started a company called Bell Free Property Management, which was basically BL, uh, but phonetically spelled Bell. And I brought my younger brother and my older brother. My younger brother was in school, in med school. My older brother worked at IBM. He just graduated, and I just graduated. I was working as an engineer. And we formed this company. I was really the guy driving it, but we bought and sold properties as a landlord in London at first, London, Ontario. And, and um, you know, I loved it. I, I didn't love the tenant thing. I didn't love having to collect rent and having to evict people for not paying rent. That's not fun. But I loved owning real estate. I loved improving real estate. And so after um, four years of working as an engineer, I, I decided to quit and get my real estate license. Uh, and that was the only way I understood to get into real estate, you know, my scale. I, I didn't understand the idea of uh, being a developer yet or you know, um, I didn't think about working for a developer or for a real estate company. I was very entrepreneurial, so I thought, I'll get my license, I'll buy real estate and sell real estate in my own account. And that's really... Were you going to do that on the side, or was it... Uh, I mean, you're an engineer with a good degree. Yeah. Was, I did it uh, was your family supportive of, of just abandoning the, uh, the four years of education and, and moving into real estate? Well, so I, I, I did four years of, of part-time uh, real estate investment and management and and after i was i i i I guess i became a millionaire by the time i was 30 uh i was making about fifty thousand a year as a real estate agent or as a engineer and the guy that was selling me real estate just in london alone and i expanded to toronto he was making seventy five thousand just selling me real estate so i thought i'll sell myself real estate i'll do more i'll make more money than i was as a as a engineer and then I can start to expand my my uh, you know little empire my dad was not happy about it but you were know you, were, were you an engineer in London or how did no, you end up there from Kingston I was an engineer in Toronto but my brother um, was a um, med student at, at uh, in London at um, Western and he needed a place to live in year one so we bought uh, a fourplex or a townhouse with four bedrooms Right. Uh, the first thing it was about twenty thousand dollars or twenty one thousand dollars, and we pooled our money together and we sold it a year later. Uh, it almost doubled in value, and then I bought four townhouses and I bought eight townhouses. At the end of it, by the time I was, I decided to quit. I had uh, about thirty properties, um, and uh, I, I didn't really need to work, so to speak, to get that fifty thousand dollar paycheck. I was. Uh, and I had money in the bank and I was independent and I knew I could start selling real estate. Um, and I, I knew I could do well at it because I was a natural salesperson, not the kind of salesperson that, you know, everybody likes necessarily, but the kind of salesperson that was disciplined, you know, because when I worked as an engineer, I was engineering sales and I worked in industrial sales uh, with um, manufacturing processes, motors, things like that. And I, I learned how to sell in that four years and I was good at it. And I knew that I could take that kind of um, well-trained base of selling, industrial selling. And with my, you know, engineers aren't stupid. Uh, 
my reasonable intellect, I think I could do, I thought I could do pretty well in the, in the residential real estate field. And I did do pretty well. And that's really where I got started. I, I took the money I made in selling real estate as, a, as an agent working with other people. And I, I used as much as I could to buy more real estate. So how many of those houses do you still have in London? None. I'll tell you what, what I didn't like about London, London's a lovely town, it's a small town, but the average income there is lower than Toronto. And, and what I found in my, in my um, working in London for those four years is it was miserable having to evict people that were paying $400 or $300 a month rent. I hated it, you know? And I hated chasing these people for money because they didn't have any money. And I realized I didn't want to be that kind of landlord. I want to be a landlord for better property. And that's how I segued into condos because I couldn't really buy big apartment buildings. I could only buy, at that time, condos were 100,000, 150,000 in Toronto. So I, I sold everything in London and I started buying in Toronto. And I liked that better because the tenants were higher rent tenants and they almost always paid their rent. And it was just, I felt better about the business doing it that way. Were you from Toronto originally? Um, I mean, I was born in Vancouver and we moved at an early age, like seven to Montreal oh, and I lived in Montreal till I was about 20. And then okay. we moved. So when I was in Queens at Kingston, I went there in my first year when I was 19 and my parents moved to Oakville. And so I kind of went between Montreal, Kingston and Oakville for a year. And then I just went in the summers, I just went and moved to Oakville. And actually in the summers I worked in an oil refinery. Wow. Ooh. Well, you stories uh, out of there. I have to ask the question then. You've gone, you've done projects in Calgary, Edmonton, Hamilton, Toronto, but nothing in Montreal. No, I did do a project in Montreal. Oh, I missed yeah, that. So, so there's a company. Into my research. <laughs> there's a company called Urban Capital that I used to partner with in Montreal and Ottawa in, in the early 2000s. And we did a development called McGill West. Um, and I took a, I, I, I didn't take the lead role in that development, but I, I owned an equal share to the two partners uh, from um, David Wex and Mark Reeve at Urban Capital. And that's how I started developing. I, I kind of took a back seat and I, I watched and I learned from other people that were doing it uh, that were friends of mine or colleagues. And um, we did a, about 320 units in Montreal down on, um, down in, um, uh, what do they call it? Uh, it's just, just on the other side of old Montreal. Your first development that you were involved with? The first, so I started working with Harhe. Uh, um, uh, Walter Harhe was also a friend of mine. I became friends because he hired me to sell all his. Actually, but before you tell this story, why don't, why don't we start? So you started at some point, you got into the, the realty company, which was Brad, uh, Brad J. Lamb Realty, and you were flipping condos and that's how that's how it got uh, got started correct well no so I started working as a real estate agent for Harry Stinson oh and, really and I worked wow. with Harry from 88 to 95 and oh, can, um, we get, can we get one Harry Stinson story <laughs> um, I'll, I'll tell you something about Harry Stinson Harry Stinson is a brilliant human being one of the best read people I've ever met as a huge brain and a huge scope of understanding of the world, he's probably too smart for his own good. Sometimes people that have a very elevated IQ uh, can have a focus problem. And 
I think Harry is a bit helter skelter. He's just, he's just, he's just a very smart guy, very creative guy, very bold person for such a small man. He's got big nuts. Uh, and I have nothing but good things to say about Harry, but I'll tell you, we used to, the first time I met Harry Stinson, this is a very funny story. First time I met Harry Stinson, I had bought a condominium on, on, on Jarvis Street. And I actually couldn't close because I didn't have uh, the, the cash at that time to close. I had a lot of real estate, but not a lot of cash. And I had bought it for $170,000. And it was 1,700 square feet. And it was a building at 256 Jarvis called The Quarters. And um, I bought it and I had gotten a six-month a closing date and it came with a mortgage and uh, the mortgage was for 95% of the price because someone had bought it and they, they, they were selling it uh, for a loss. And so um, by the time my closing date came up, the property had appreciated from 170 to 250 or 260. And I kept looking in the Globe and Mail and the Star about who was the condo specialist at the time. This is like 87 around 87. And the guy that kept coming up was Harry Stinson. He's the only guy that wanted anything to do with condos in central Toronto. No, you know, this was like cholera. Nobody wanted to get involved in, in, uh, in the condo market. And he had these great ads. They were like massive paragraphs that describe, you know, these buildings. And they sounded so great in his description. He's a very uh, literate guy. And so I called him and I said, listen, I have this condo I want to sell. And um, so he said, okay, I'll meet you outside of the building and you can take me up to the unit. So I'm standing outside, I'm wearing a suit and a tie because that's how I dressed is my engineering job. And this car pulls up into the drive of, uh, of the quarters and it's about a, a, a got to be a 45 foot long red Senator stretch limo. <laughs> and, and like candy apple red. And, and the driver pops out and it's this guy, he's not a big guy, he's very thin, and he's wearing a white cotton tracksuit. Uh, like it's a pullover tracksuit with pants and the elastics down the bottom. He's massive, uh, like uh, multicolored Nike waffle trainers. And he's got a suitcase for a phone. No one had cell phones, it's like a suitcase. And I didn't even know what it was. I'm like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> and, and his hair was all akimbo. Like, it was like he, he, he put a hedge trimmer in there and it was all disheveled. And he's like, I'm Harry Stinson. I was literally. Wow. What? Wait, so he was driving the limo? He was driving this. <laughs> he, for, this is what he drove customers around in. He had this massive stretch limo. It was, it was literally 40 feet long. You could fit about 12 people in the back of this thing. But why do you have a limo if you have to drive it yourself? I d- dude, I don't have an answer for that. I think, I think, I think he did it because it, uh, well, he had a business called the Mad Hatter's Tea Party, and he used it to shepherd children from, uh, he picked them up and dropped them off to this party center he used to have. But I was, I was like, wow, this guy is so weird. But he was very, very knowledgeable. And he, so we put it up for sale for two fifty six, and he called me five days later and said, we have an offer come to my restaurant. I'm like, wait, you have a restaurant? He goes, yes, I, I own a restaurant called The Groaning Board, which was this massive cafeteria style restaurant, health food. And uh, he said, come down and have dinner and whatever and we'll do the offer. So I went down there. I went down there at the time with my uh, girlfriend 
And uh, this restaurant was enormous. It was probably 8,000 feet. Where was it? It's now the Indonesian Embassy, I think, in, uh, in Toronto. It's down at the end of Jarvis. Jarvis yeah. Church. Hmm. Anyway, uh, that, so um, we, uh, we sold it that night for 256, and I bought it for 170, and I made $75,000. And I was like, wow. Yeah. Amazing. And, he, and uh, he, you know, I was very happy with what he did. And I said to him that night, I'm going to get my real estate license. And I'm going to come work for you. You're the only guy that is specializing in the condo market. And that's what I want to do. I want to sell condos in a city that will the future will be condos. And he said, okay, get your license. And we, we liked each other immediately. He was, you know, he's a quirky guy. And I appreciated his intellect and his uh, ability and his creativeness. And so I, I did. I quit my job. I got my real estate license in about five weeks, six weeks. You could do it quickly back then. And, um, and then I started working for him um, on Jarvis Street. He got a new office on Jarvis in the gay ghetto at the time, but it wasn't quite as gay as it is now. It was a little more concentrated around Wellesley and, and Jarvis. We were a bit north towards Bloor. Uh, and we had this beautiful Victorian building. There was just two of us in there. It was like 8,000 feet, and we only <laughs> it was enormous, and just two of us in there. And, uh, for about a year, it was just two of us, and in my, in, in, I did great in my first year, and I got to say that uh, I really embraced Harry's hard work. You know, his attitude was just work all the time. I really worked all day, every day, to build my business, and in a short period of time, Harry asked me to be his partner, and uh, these are days when I was 30, and I was making over a million dollars a year in commissions, selling wow. real estate in, in the early 90s, which, by the way, was during the recession. And I was making a great deal of money. We were probably the number one real estate team in the country at the time. I like that, I like that foreshadow there. What, what was yeah. that? Well, the, the early 90s recession. We're, we're, getting to, we're getting to the recession. We'll get to that later on. But sorry. This, this is a depression. It's worse than a recession. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's, so, so I worked with him, and I became his partner, and we did very well and made lots of money. And then Harry decided he wanted to be a developer, and I wasn't ready for that. I was, I was in my early 30s, and I still didn't fully understand what my future was going to be and my path. I knew it involved real estate. I was more interested in owning real estate than building at the time. And he kept, you know, he kept buying these old office buildings. And, uh, I mean, he was, he was very, you know, he was, he was very uh, ahead of his time. I mean, most of the things he bought ultimately became high-rise buildings like Casa initially was a CTV building he bought and he lost it. Uh, he bought the candy factory and lost it. Um, he did a lot of things back in those days when nobody had the confidence to do anything. Um, you know, Colbert. Almost like he was ahead of his time. He was way ahead of his time. He's a very smart guy. And, and at that time we met Peter Clues in the early nineties. Peter had a, an, a, a, he was a, very creative guy, but it, you know, business wasn't that great. And he was one of the original contemporaries that helped change the look of the city. And we became friendly in the early nineties. And um, uh, so Harry tried, uh, he tried the Loft Sun King. He tried a building up the CTV building where Cass is today. He tried the candy factory. He tried a whole bunch of these buildings he bought and they failed because there, was just no, there weren't any buyers for it. His ideas were great. And I got frustrated because he was taking all of the, uh, of the energy that we could 
do selling real estate, which we're very good at, and we had a good specialty. And he, he was tired of it. He didn't want to do it anymore. And so I, I, I told him I was leaving and started my own company. And I started Brad Gillian Realty in, Inc. in 1995. I was very upset. It was hard, but I had to do it. And, and that's when I went off on my own and started to kind of imagine what things could be. Nice. I haven't looked back since. And, and when did you start selling new condos? Like the, for, for the developers in their sales offices? What's funny, you know, in 1995, the internet was literally invented in 1995. When I heard about this thing called the internet, I decided I was going to reserve a whole bunch of, of uh, www. Dot, uh, www. domains, And I had uh, uh, about 20 of the great ones, the early ones that were, I, I let them go. Um, but I kept a few. I kept torontocondos.com, obviously bradjlam.com. Well, at one point I let that go, I didn't even know, and it expired and someone took it and I had to buy it back from them. But, um, you know, uh, what happened is one day, um, a guy by the name of Ron Solskoni, who was a senior executive of Olympian York and Olympian York had gone bankrupt because of Canary Wharf in the early nineties and his, uh, boyfriend, husband, whatever you want to call him was Howard Cohen and Howard Cohen formed a company called context eventually. But before that he partnered with Lloyd Alter, and he started a company called CNA Developments. And Ron came in uh, to interview me because I was one of the few guys that was notable at the time in the condo sales business. And there was no develop, there was no Baker Real Estate or anyone at that time. No one was selling new uh, condos. And he came to me and he said, "Listen, um, you know, you seem like you know what you're doing. We want we want to talk about hiring you to do this project on Niagara, which became 20 Niagara." And what happened is. I met with him and I went with uh, Howard and I pitched myself for the job. I really, 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 really wanted this job. Beautiful, cool building. And it was the start of, you know, it was the restarting of development, which was, I was very excited about getting involved with. And he, and he called me and he said, listen, uh, um, there's also an agent by the name of David Rose that used to work with, with Daryl Kent real estate. And then he became a big, big, big agent with, uh, Johnson and Daniel, and he was also Howard Cohen's best friend. Um, and I had bought that condo at Quarters from David Rose that I ultimately sold with Harry Stinson. And I kept a very close relationship with David. He kind of was a bit of a mentor of mine. And, and so um, Howard Cohen called me and said, listen, we're giving the project to Stephen Fudge. Uh, we, we love you, you think you're great, but Stephen seems to have a better grasp on this than you. And I said, wait a minute. Where are you right now? We're in our offices. He said, don't do anything. I'm coming over to see you. I need to talk to you. And I drove over there and I would not, I, him and Lloyd and David Rose was there. And I convinced him over an hour of just basically not letting him take Dave, uh, uh, Stephen Fudge for the job, that he signed the contract with me to sell this building. And I- On the spot? Yep. That a boy. And and you know, the exciting thing was, it was my first new project. And from that project, David Wex walked, I, I actually sold it myself. I was there for every day of the week for six or eight hours. I was in that showroom, busting my nuts to make it work. And I, I actually bought one in there too, to get people, you know, I bought one, you should buy one, that kind of yeah. thing. And, and then David Wex walked into the sales office and I got a project on Camden called Camden Loss. And then Mike Dankovy walked into my office, who worked for Metro Ontario Group, and gave me 
candy factory because I had Camden lofts. And then it just grew from there. I just started doing all of the loft conversions in the city, or most of them. Were you hiring agents at this point, or was it were you yeah, a one-man show? I had, I had, I had um, at that time, uh, uh, I started with three agents in 95, and by the time 98 came around, I had about a dozen. Wow. And they were good agents. We always kept it small in those days, with really, really talented people um, that I, uh, they were all friends of mine, too, in, in those days. Yeah, anyway, that's how I, I, I got into new development. And then, you know, I got, I got hired by most of the, the guys that were active at that time. I also became quite well-known for saving failed projects. So I, I took over a lot of projects like Candy Factory that had failed, uh, you know, that, had, that were like 5 or 6% sold. And we did whatever it took. Uh, I mean, the things we did, <laughs> we worked very, very hard to make those projects sell. And... Uh, I put a lot of my own personal, uh, you know, heartache into them and really, um, we really did everything we could. Uh, no one could have worked harder and it paid off because it, yeah. it gave me a reputation as a, as a strong condo broker. Everybody knew me cause I was in the newspaper a lot from these projects. It was the start of, uh, you know, really me getting into development and learning about it. Sounds like, sounds like you were really slugging it down in the trenches there and, um, it was hard work, get, man. Getting a little, getting a little bit of dirt underneath the fingernails, so to speak. Yeah, the, one, the one, the one thing I always liked about you, Brad, is you, you always buy units in the projects that you sold, right? And then that, and I think that gives people a lot of confidence, saying, "Hey, I'm, I'm spending my own money here, right? So, you know, I'm not just blowing smoke up your, uh, your rear." And even some of the projects, I'm like, "Wow, you bought a unit in that building." <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because uh, when I got when context then came to me next after my Dankavy and I, I, I got, uh, so I got the little 20 Niagara project and I got their next project, which was district loss. Uh, well, they did one in between that. They did the Kensington loss, which I didn't get. And then I won them. I got them back on district loss because I found the land for them and I introduced them to the seller and I didn't take a fee. My deal was I'm going to sell the building for you. And I remember in that building, I bought, I bought uh, three condos, which was a lot at the time. I bought a unit for one nineteen nine, but now is selling for seven hundred thousand. I bought another unit for one twenty nine nine, and I bought one for one forty nine nine, and I also bought a fourth unit which was a penthouse, and I lived in that two thousand square foot penthouse, and I lived in that penthouse for a while. Uh, I bought that penthouse for four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Wow! You know, I think two thousand two thousand one. Today, that penthouse is probably worth uh, two and a half million. But, but anyway, I bought four units, and Stephen, Stephen Cohen, who was uh, – uh, Steve Cohen, uh, who was his partner? Yes, I think his name is Steve Cohen. Anyway, he was, um, he was his partner with – he owned Waterloo Capital at the time. And um, he said to me, why are you buying these condos? I said, well, you, you're the developer, and you don't think there's value in the product you're selling? He goes, no, I wouldn't buy this house. <laughs> Come on. I swear to you. <laughs> wow. How are you going to finance? I'm like, Stephen, you're a very rich guy. What do you mean? Sorry, same as Stephen Gross. Stephen Gross. Yeah, Howard right. Cohen, uh, Stephen Gross. And he, and he said, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't get it. Do they make sense? Do they rent and do you make a positive cash flow? I'm like, do they rent? Do they make a positive cash flow? And by all accounts, you know, I bought one. I bought them in the candy factory. I bought one in 20 Niagara. I bought three in the Camden Lofts. I always bought units, as you said. 
And um, he was, he couldn't believe it. And so he started buying units because I bought units. He bought units in his own building because I bought units there. And then you're right. The thing is, when you can tell someone, when you're the salesperson there and you're somewhat notable and you can say, listen, I bought these three units, it gets other people to buy those units or other units because it gives you credibility. You're putting your money out there just like you're asking them to do. And you're right. I've always done that. In every building I repped, every single building, I bought anywhere from one to 26. In one project, I bought over 30 units. My goodness. Right, you know, you know the, how the saying goes now, because you, uh, you borrow a lot of money from a variety of different lenders, and every lender's favorite line is wanting you to have skin in the game, right? So it, it actually, it's, uh, it's, it's the same uh, concept. I mean, think about it. You had skin in the game. You were putting your money where your mouth was, and all the other buyers came and realized that and said, well, if he's, if he's buying and he's, he's actually personally investing, then, then I'm going for it too. You so, know what's funny? Dude, is I made money in every one of those transactions. And back in those days, you know, in the early, in early 2000, you, buy, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I bought that penthouse for 450 and I sold it two years later for 750. Now, $300,000, you know, this is when you could buy a development site for 3 million. So $300,000 to make on a single transaction was a great deal of money. Right? And, and, and I did that, I did that, you know, in those, in, in 96 to 2002, I did that 60, 50, 60 times, you know? And every single time I made money, and it's funny, today, people worry about this today. There's never been a time in the history of real estate in the world where buying real estate holding it and selling in the future hasn't been a good business idea. Now, when you sell it in the future is the important thing. You don't sell it when it's worth less than what you bought it for. You wait till it goes up, but, but always, 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 it's a good plan. And, and you know, I've been doing it since 1984 and I've never lost a dollar on any condominium I've bought. Do you ever look back at every, uh, and, and say to yourself, if I had kept every single unit I bought since 1984 and done nothing else, I'd be a, a wealthy, wealthy man. Well, see, so I, so that that's true for most people. But you see, what I did with my money is when I bought my my first development site on my own, which was on Oxley and Charlotte. It was uh, Glass is the project. I bought that for four million dollars, and I sold. I needed a million and a half dollars to to buy it and close on it, and I borrowed two and a half. And there was a parking lot there that had about twenty thousand in income, twenty five thousand income. And how did I get that money? Well, I sold seven condominiums right. by that. And then that project ended up making me about $8 million. So I took, you know, uh, I took uh, a million and a million and a half dollars of real estate and I, 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 I earned $8 million. But in addition to that, I also ended up buying uh, six units in my own project. I bought... Uh, a bunch of small apartments there. So I kind of replaced what I sold and I also made $8 million. So, you know, I've never taken the money. What I've never done is sell a condo and buy a, a Porsche or, a, you know, or a gold watch or, you know, go on an expensive trip. What I've always done is taken the money I make in real estate to buy more real estate. And the reason today why I am uh, relatively wealthy is because I, I never stopped, uh, I never took money off the table and left it off the table. I took it and I put it back in. Right. Who financed that, that first project for you, do you remember? 
Yeah, it was, um, I don't remember who did the land loan, but MCAP. I know you're gonna say that. <laughs> with Steve. Um, Camp? He works for you, yeah, Steve Camp yeah. with you. Steve Camp, I'm pretty sure did the mortgage because um, I owned, in the end, I owned 60 something percent of that project. Walter Harhe owned a piece and Peter Clues owned a piece. My architect. So I, I, I sold a piece to my architect and, and Walter was a very good friend of mine because I sold all of his projects uh, up until when he passed away. And, um, uh, and he, I, you know, I didn't really feel comfortable hiring a construction company that I didn't know. So I gave Walter the contract. And, and when, when you started doing your own development, were you worried that this was going to, you know, cost you your, uh, you know, selling some of these projects? Yeah, well, so uh, it did, right? Absolutely. I, you know, I made the decision that um, I wasn't going to dip my toe in the development water. I was going to go big or go home because if I dip my toe in the development water, at the time I was making it not to brag or anything, but I was doing about $10 million a year in commissions as a broker. Uh, I mean, net commissions to a broker. So I was making many millions, probably at the time I was, you know, after costs, making $6 million a year as a real estate broker. And, uh, and that, that's a big giveaway. Uh, that's a big thing to lose. And, and a lot of that was, uh, you know, 70% of my income came from new development sales and, and 30% came from resales, you know? And, uh, you know, I had Peter Fried as a client, I had Context, I had Harhe, I had, uh, I had Urban Capital, I had, uh, I had uh, Lantera, all these guys. Uh, I also had um, Crestford. And, you know, I figured, you know, at that time in the early 2000s, I had sold, um, I'd sold really, if not hundreds, at least 100 buildings by 2004 when I really decided to go big. And I, I thought, well, I, I've done this, you know, I don't know what else I can really do in terms of uh, selling new projects. I've kind of done it and I've done the brokerage thing and it's not like I want to lose the brokerage thing, but I really, really felt I wanted to, uh, you know, be a developer. I, want, I like the artistic part of it, the creative part of it. I liked the fact that you're changing the city in my mind, of course, and I live in my own mind, but for the better. And, um, so I, I, I did lose that and, and I had to replace it with revenues from development and also me representing myself. Uh, but my, my, you know, my sales, my sales dropped dramatically when I, my commissions dropped dramatically when I went off on my own and I needed to build a big enough development company to sort of claw that back. And so we haven't, you know, we don't, I don't do, uh, you know, I was doing 2000 plus sales a year back then. And um, today we do, you know, a thousand sales a year, maybe twelve hundred sales a year. So we we definitely lost a big chunk of brokerage revenue. Um, but what I picked up was much larger revenues in the development side, right? Rather than hundreds of thousands of dollars from the sale of, of real estate, we're making millions of dollars in development real estate. So it it was a trade off. Listen, I think, I think it's worked out pretty well for you. <laughs> yes, it, it was a trade-off that cost me for a few years, for sure. I was under the gun for a few years. I felt, you know, I, I, I never questioned myself, but I certainly felt the pain sometimes. And it is a business. Unlike brokerage, which is far less risky, you know, 
times like today and times like 2009, you, you're definitely under a lot more pressure is, is the carrying all these jobs and the Ooh. debt you know, that you yeah. carry and responsibilities. They weigh on you. Um, but for me, it was worth doing. I'm happy I did it. I, I guess that, that uh, I had a question for you on kind of the, uh, the Brad Lamb model where how you were, you know, were buying lands and then going out to sales before you had approvals and, you know, you get approvals right before you're qualifying for construction financing. And then that, I guess that that model is a little more difficult to do today with the longer approval timelines. How, how have you had to kind of adjust that, you know, kind of model that you had worked not, not only a longer approval time but just the rapidly increasing cost if you look at the last three to five years in particular you yeah. uh you budget you, you buy a site or you you put a pro forma together to buy a, a new development site and by the time you actually get into the construction all the numbers have changed well listen we got burned with that so i mean i i don't think that was the bradland model maybe i taught that to a lot of developers that we work with too because it was pretty common that people you know, you'd estimate roughly when you, first of all, you designed something you thought had a very good chance of either being approved by the city or being approved by a board. And the timeline for board, board access used to be uh, in and out a year and a half, and now it's in and out three years or three and a half years. But that's changing. I want to talk about that too. So, so you know, we got burned. We, we had to cancel, um, you know, what's now called the Woodsworth. We had to cancel Bauhaus. And we had to cancel one other one called uh, a Wellington House. And, you know, that got me into hot water with, with um, uh, it got me into hot water with Terrion. They weren't happy about that. Now, we did, we followed the rules. We did everything we were supposed to do and we're allowed to do it. But Terrion wants to have developers that uh, uh, actually complete what they say they're going to complete. They don't, it's not good for them to have projects canceled. Now, the reason why our projects got canceled were, were there were many reasons, but, but one of the reasons is that when we started selling, you know, at, at 700 a foot or 600 a foot, the cost came in at a thousand a foot. And th that's of course, one of the reasons why projects get canceled. There's all, there's a whole host of other reasons too, but sometimes the projects uh, change entirely from the time you initially sold them to the time you, you, uh, like like Wellington House, for instance, we lost at the OMB and, and you know, the building is going to change dramatically. So obviously you can't honor those sales. So our model today is we are not going to market unless the OMB has ruled in favor of the project and we have a rezoning by decree or the city has passed it in council. And those agreements also sit with, uh, with uh, Terrion. They have asked us, officially to not market any more projects unless one of those two things have happened and that's the way we're going forward with it and i'm much more comfortable with that and i think it's a better route uh, it's far less risky for us there's there's more upfront costs because we have to carry the land and so on and we don't really know uh what the outcome will be with sales but we're more confident now with sales than we've ever been and i think part of the reason why we sold projects early was it used to take us uh, a year and a half to sell 150 apartments and now we can sell 150 apartments in a month. <laughs> For sure. Um, I guess, I guess like the, the other thing I think of is kind of like the, the Brad Lamb model, but maybe it's not something you invented, but how you tend to sell 60% of the building 
get your financing and then you like really crank the prices up on the remaining units. And I've seen more people kind of adopt that as, uh, even though the market's been, you know, strong for 20, 25 years, other than the global economic crisis, there were still a lot of people that were really conservative and would sell out their building in one month, as opposed to holding back, knowing that you've got, you know, the, the two, three years under construction period for values to continue to go up and, and, you know, obviously get some more revenue out of the, out of the project. Have you, have you changed your mind on that, uh, that side of the business, that revenue? Uh, no, because we're comfortable owning real estate in Toronto. Like I, I have, a, I'm a big believer in the, um, in Toronto, you know, is on a going, going forward basis being a greater and greater city. You know, every, I'm just astonished at, at you know, every month of the great new things that are happening here. And, and that's only really going to get better. We, we kind of have enough momentum as a city now where we can't, we can't go back, you know. There was a time when it looked like Toronto could go back in the early 2000s, but so much has happened in the last 20 years. We are now on a juggernaut like London or, or, or Tokyo or New York, and we're not going back. We're a world city. We're a great city and, and all these amazing things. Now, Brad, I agree with you, but can you just elaborate on that? Because I think it's, a, it's an interesting topic. When you say in the early 2000s, you know, there was a time maybe we could have gone back, but now it's too late. We're on a juggernaut. Like, why, why, why? Obviously, 20 years later, a lot has happened. Well, think but. of it. In the early 2000s, Allied bought, uh, you know, 46 buildings from uh, Sam Sable, right? He was in the Schmata business. Mm -hmm. And while he was doing his clothing thing, he, he, he and his partners bought up all kinds of beautiful warehouses in the south precincts and east and west of Toronto. And Allied came along and for $40 million bought all of it. That $40 million portfolio is worth billions today. It's, it's yeah. essentially the core of Allied. And back in those days, you know, the candy factory struggled. I'm going to tell you, if it wasn't for my refusal to let that building fail, I put my life into that building. And that building changed Queen West. And people don't realize that, that how bad that neighborhood was yeah. at that you know how people didn't want to live there you know and and so what happened is that guys like me guys like david wex guys like peter clues guys like howard cohen and all the other early people to this even peter friedad included in that in the early stages of the late 90s and early 2000s we are the ones and allied that brought credibility to the downtown core but it wasn't always going to be that case it could have gone another way and if it wasn't for intrepid people that just saw the future this wouldn't have happened. And so, you know, I saw what this city could become and I punched my way as hard as I could along with 20 other guys that started off when I did to, to, to see this to fruition. And now it looks easy, but it wasn't always easy. And there was a time when we looked at ourselves and said, are we fucking crazy? Is this going to happen? You know? Yeah. And yeah. it did happen. And, and now it's, it's the, the, the bulls are, are, they're out of the pen, man. They're not going back in. So I'm excited about Toronto and, and so, you know, our model is, I'll give an example. In Harlow, we started selling Harlow at, at 550 a square foot. And we sold 65% of the building at 550 a square foot. Wow. The building is now selling for 1,200 a foot. We closed it like nine or 10 months ago. So the average one-bedroom buyer who bought a condo for $250,000 is selling his condo today for 640. Now, do wow. you, developer, developer, do you want a piece of that? that extra 350,000 or you want to give it away? I think it's smart business to try to hold on as much as you can. And that's why we take a risk with our projects and we do that. 
for sure. I was uh, I was at a um, you know spoke at one of your events and you did a little presentation yourself where you you talked about the increases in the construction cost over the last three years. Was were you in any way anticipating that type of increase in construction costs? No, I don't think the increase in construction costs is necessarily a real cost because if you look at commodities, commodities aren't really any more expensive and labor contracts haven't gone up 20 or 30%. They go up, you know, they're hard fought to get a couple of points a year, you know. What's happened is that, you know, uh, what happened is that in, in 2016, real estate prices went from five or 600 a foot to 800 a foot in six or eight months. It was an astonishing, unbelievable increase in value. And I didn't see it coming. Well, you know, so, so our margins went from 20% to 50% overnight, right? Now, no one's going to allow that to happen. So the city of Toronto looks at that and says, well, hold it. Now, developers are they're making us huge margin. They know, they know our margins. We can't let that happen. So what happens? They double development fees, right? They literally take them from 25000 to 50000 overnight. They, 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 the evaluation the of land prices with the city doubles, right? They charge you park levies. They double the cost of parks levies. Uh, permits prices go up. So now your concrete forming guy goes, well, you know, uh, we need to make more money. So they raise their prices. And then the, and the drywall guys go, well, listen, we need to make more money. So, so basically, it's a perfect system where for a short period of time, you can have a margin of 50% for like four or five or six months for whatever inventory you can sell. But then what happens is the system closes down and says, well, you can't, you can't have that. That's an unfair profit. And it changes and it changes very, very quickly. So, you know, uh, we went from building Harlow for 185 a foot, so one, maybe 192 a foot. And today, Harlow, I just finished it maybe nine months ago. Today, Harlow is 340 a foot. That's the difference. Wow. And that's just hard cost. We, we you know, Mike, if I was to build Harlow today, you know, we made money at Harlow, good money, and the average price over the whole project ended up being 750 a foot. But today I would need a thousand a foot to break even at Harlow. That's the new new reality. Yeah. Yeah. The 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 cost. Of, what what for uh, for everyone out there listening and curious? I know um, obviously the, the the major costs that have gone up. Concrete has gone up. Forming work has gone up. Forming work across the city. It's it's hard to find a good forming contractor if you can even find one. The cost of re steel and rebar has gone up. I assume uh, some of the you know mechanical. Uh, engineering, electrical, but what, what are the big costs that you've seen that have really changed the scope of the uh, of costs? Well, it's not, it's not in the consultants. Consultants haven't really raised their prices. Architects still charge, you know, it's a million dollars through a 40 story building. It's, it's been like that. Yeah, no, I'm talking about hards in particular. Cause I mean, you're saying hards now are at 380 a foot to build where they're at under 200, five four years ago. Tile prices have gone down. Hardwood floors prices have gone down. Appliances have gone down. But anything related to labor is gone up and steel's gone up. And steel's unfairly gone up because it was always about this tariff thing. The tariff thing's over and they're still, you know, killing us on steel. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's uh, I think some of, this, some of these costs are going to come down. I think some of these companies are going to have to lay people off and that might soften 
uh, the cost of uh, construction. So maybe it'll keep prices in check because we yeah. were hanging 1500 a foot pretty fast. Yeah. We're in around 1350 right now, but we're seeing 15, 16, 1700 a foot being easily taken by buyers. And maybe this will keep us under $2,000 a foot, you know, six or eight years from now. Well, so I think that's a good segue. Uh, when you say this is obviously we're going through uh, <laughs> quite a, quite the uh, serious, like, economic shakeup, I guess you could call it, um, you know, unprecedented pandemic that's, that's hit the city, uh, that's hit this country, that's hit the world. Uh, I know you have some strong opinions on, on uh, how we as a community, as a, as a city and a country are handling it and worldwide, how other major leaders are handling it. We can jump into that in a second, but just to, to segue, how, how do you see the long-term effects of, uh, of this slowdown uh, in the con affecting the condo world? So obviously costs and, uh, and revenues in terms of absorption, um, you know, a big one for me that I'm interested in is how many land transactions, how many developers are going to buy big parcels of land in the core in the next three months, six months, nine months and beyond, um, you know, just sort of open it up, uh, as to, as you know, the co the co let's enter the COVID-19 topic and, and that discussion. Well, the good news is the construction sites are open. So, uh, developers are not selling product, but they're not giving away product. In other words, they're just deferring revenue down the road, right? It's not lost revenue because they have product, they have inventory. And because construction sites are open, that's a very good thing to keep the health of our industry. Uh, you know, uh, uh, your, your, your burn is based on the construction sites. It's not really based on holding inventory. It's not, that's not a huge problem for us or for many developers. So I think most developers will come out of this okay, depending how long it lasts for. But you know, we got to understand this, this is not humans getting afraid of the marketplace and causing a stampede to the exit. This is government orchestrated. And, and I think that, um, you know, so I think we, I think we reacted in, after looking at this, I think we reacted improperly as a civilization. I think that it was proper for us to, to flatten the curve. I think that made a lot of sense because, you know, what we were told is, uh, hospitals would be overrun and people who needed treatment would not get treatment and there would be a high account for that in terms of deaths and we didn't want as a society to be able to say we didn't do our best to keep the hospitals free and open mm. so over the last 30 or 35 days we have done a great job what's happened is all of the estimates of hospital beds being used of people being very sick and of deaths have been well below with the initial scaring uh, of the population, uh, you know, reporting it took place was very scary and was not true, right? So I think everyone now understands that all the government statistics from 30 days ago have been proven out to be not correct. Yeah, but I, th I think when you look at it, it was, it was in comparison to the cities that were hit hard across the world. And it was scary if you look at Italy and Spain and obviously a number of different cities in China. No, I, I think that, that that regardless of whether they've been proven right or not, what they have done is flattened the curve, right? So the challenge here and why we're all sold on quarantining ourselves was we need to flatten the curve so the hospitals do not get overwhelmed. That was the sell to the quarantine and shutting down the economy and the social distancing was we need to make sure that if someone goes to the hospital for treatment, they can get treatment. And now we know because the surge has happened all over the world, 
we know this by all the curves, you look at New York, you look at all the different uh, surge curves, that we are now uh, lowering the amount of beds needed for this. And if you look at any hospital in Canada, they're all in good shape with ventilators, beds, and everything, okay? So I think that we've done the job we need to do to flatten the curve. Now the question is, what do we do now? So you, you can't hide from this virus. It's not, it's not possible to hide from, from this virus for, by social distancing quarantine. Forever. You can hide from it temporarily, but I agree at some level, you, we can't hide forever. And if you do, we'll all starve to death because we, there's obviously people needed to, to, uh, to generate revenues for even the government to, to, to provide this money they're providing to people. They need to tax people. If no companies make a profit this year, they'll earn zero corporate tax, which is a huge contributor to the tax base. So it just, it's not, it just doesn't make any sense. But what we need to do now is we need to, the, the, what we're being sold now is we need a vaccine. And I'm, I'm not accepting that because that was not part of, the, part of what we were told we were going to have to do to flatten the curve. Now telling me we need a vaccine to go forward, you're lying to me and you're not being truthful. You're changing the narrative. What we need to do is we need to get people who are at risk into quarantine and stay in quarantine. People who are sick need to stay in their homes. Everyone else, uh, and you know, I would say at risk people are elderly people. Anyone who we think is at risk from having a bad case of coronavirus needs to be taken care of in quarantine. Old age homes and rest, rest homes need to be far better managed. And this is where they need to put their resources. Everybody else that either is not sick or has been sick and has been cured needs to go back to the cell, to, the, to, the, to, to their jobs. It means all the restaurants need to be open, all the bars need to be open. And listen, if you get sick, you go to the hospital and there's a place for you. But the, the reality is, is the people who are saying go back to work are unlikely to get sick or if they get sick, it'll be mild. If it's not mild, if some portion of these people go back and it's not mild, they can go to hospital and get treated. But there's no way we can hide from this virus any longer. We need to open up our economy. The, the, the misery that's gonna happen, every week this continues. The misery for, for the average person. The average person saves $160 a month in Canada. And we're a rich country. $160 a month is going to do nothing for you. And if, if your savings are a couple of thousand dollars, you've already blown through them. What's going to happen to you? Government can't save everybody with helicoptering money. There's not enough money in our system. We now need to look at the reality of this and say, there's a consequence to, to being quarantined. There's a consequence to COVID. We need to find a middle ground to solving this problem. And it doesn't mean that people aren't going to die. People are going to die. People die every day in Canada, in Toronto, Ontario, every day from, from cancer, from lung disease, from heart attacks, from suicide, from alcohol-related illnesses, from car accidents, all the time. We can't prevent all of this. And for us to believe we can prevent everyone and make everyone safe from COVID is not reasonable. It's not a reasonable dialogue to have. What we need to do is keep as many people as we can safe and those that get sick, we need to make sure they have the best treatment possible. We need to open up and we need to do it soon. So, so what about everybody who's saying that if we do open up too soon, it's all the work that we've done to, to flatten this hypothetical curve is going to go out the window and it's the, the cases are going to start doubling and tripling daily and skyrocket again. Because I mean, I think that's the fear, right? I think the fear is we open up too soon 
and we go back to work and everybody's a carrier and everybody gives it uh, to the people who are, who are vulnerable, who are quarantining. And uh, we're back in maybe September where we were at the beginning of March. Okay, but if you think about this right now, this has been in, in North America since December. Uh, we're almost, we're almost, so we've got December, January, February, March, and we're into April. So by the end of this quarantine, it'll be five months. After five months, you're, you're, you're likely to see 2,000 people pass away from COVID, which I'm not in any way saying that's fine. That's terrible. But unfortunately, um, disease causes death in some cases. And we're not going to find a situation uh, where that's never going to be the case to be zero. It's not going to happen. So, you know. So if, it, you're, if you're Ford right now, or actually better yet, if you're Trudeau, uh, what's your next move? Well, let me say this. So, so um, we've, we've, the, first, the first realm of this is the worst because we're, none of us are immune, right? So the surge happens and more people will get sick and die in the first run of this. As, as this ricochets through the world over the next three years, the next time will be less and the next time will be less because there'll be people who are immune. The question here is, why, why was the government so willing to run death models and scare the shit out of everyone saying, oh, we, you know, there could be millions dead, hundreds of thousands dead. Now they're saying it's, you know, 11,000 to 20,000 in Canada dead. These are big numbers. Why are they so willing to run models for death when there's only 1,000 people dead right now? and they're saying this number is going to die. Why are they not providing infected models? Why haven't they run tests in parts of the country where they can test the same 2,000 people every week for a month and tell us in that sample how many people died, how many people uh, got it and were cured, and how many people never got it? We need to know how many people are infected. What if right now 3 million people are infected in Canada? What if that's the number? What if it's not, you know, 26,000 or whatever this ridiculous well, I think it, I think it is closer to 3 million. If you actually look at the amount of people being tested, it's probably easily 3 million. Absolutely. Okay. So and I, if, okay, so if it's 3 million, we're not that far off from herd immunity. We get to 9 million people or whatever the number is for herd immunity, we're not that far away. And if we look at this, if, if you know, if... If uh, the death, the mortality rate here is um, 1,000 divided by 3 million, it's far lower than it is for the common flu. And if that's the case, then we know if 3 million people can be out there right now working, then, and, and only 1,000 get sick and die, it means that if we take those people that are likely to die, which we know those are the ones with underlying illnesses, let's get those people to safety. Let's make sure those people have what they need to not get infected and do a great job quarantining them. Normal, no more people should be dying in old age homes and hospices, that's crazy. Let's protect them. But we know that 99.99% of this population in Canada will be unaffected. Let's get them back to work. Let's isolate the ones we know are at risk, older people and underlying conditions. Let's isolate the ones that are sick and let everyone get back to work because we know that most people, when I say most people, it's probably 99.99% of people are not going to get sick and die. And we're shutting down the entire economy for the sake of 0 0.1, 0.01% death rate. Wait, it, if, if, three, if 3 million people have it and 20,000 people died, it's only 0. What's it? 0. No, no, 0. 1,000 1, people have died. If 3 million people have it today and 1,000 people. Oh, I mean, yeah, 0. 0.000. I agree. I mean, the stats are, 
anyway, uh, so so what's what's the, what's the next step? I mean, as as a small business or small medium sized business owner, uh, as you are, you employ obviously uh, how many people do you employ? Fifty people plus uh, everyone on site and plus everybody on on uh, on contracts. Uh, you know ourselves as well, small small business owners who are um, employing uh, you know a number of great young young people in the workforce today. We want to get back to work. We want to keep going. I mean, what can we do? And from your perspective, to uh, to encourage, if it is to encourage the government to make a change or to do something different, or what what can we do? From your opinion, to to move this forward and and to, to I don't know. I don't know if there's an end to this. I don't want to say to, to no. I'll answer your question. What we need to do is we need to take, so I wrote this essay and I circulate, I think you have a copy uh, and I want you to circulate to everyone uh, that you can, if you, if you believe in what I'm saying, we need to open up a dialogue with our government. So, you know, th there is another side of this, which is the economic side of it. And it's not about being greedy and selling condos. I, I don't need to work anymore. Whether or not I sell another condo won't affect my life. I'm going to tell you though, it's, I walk by all these businesses that are closed, small businesses. I have friends that own gyms and restaurants. They're done. They're never coming back. They're finished. And it's been 45 days. They're never coming back. They're all declaring bankruptcy. And they'll never fine. be able to open a restaurant. They'll be able to borrow money because their credit rating's ruined. The government's not going to say, oh, we're going to waive everyone who has a bad credit rating from COVID-19. They can't do that. It's right. Don't lend you money. So we need to talk to government now about changing the narrative. The narrative is not about waiting for a cure. The narrative is to get back to normal, not a new normal, normal. There is no new normal. The new normal is what it was. That's what we have to do. Social distancing is fine if we're trying to protect the vulnerable, the people that could die from this. But if people aren't going to die from this, why are we continuing to social distance now that we've flattened the curve? We flattened the curve to protect those who are most vulnerable. We've done that now. Why are we still doing it? We need to have a dialogue about this and when is it going to happen? When are we going to open up business again and allow people to go into restaurants? You can't open a restaurant and give them 50% capacity. The margins on restaurants are four or 5%. They can't yeah, make percent capacity. Yeah. Anyway, I, what, I, what I want people to do is I want them to contact their political representative and tell them this must end. We must have a compromise. We must have a dialogue about how, get, how to get back to work. And it doesn't mean hiding until a cure arrives because that's not coming anytime soon. The one thing I was surprised about, and I always, you know, read some of these reports that got put out, the average Canadian or, or you know, or 30% of the population is only one paycheck away from uh, having no money. And I was like, oh, come on, that's, you know, people's savings rates aren't that low. And literally two weeks into the, the lockdown, you know, everyone's saying they're not going to pay their rent. I was just honestly shocked, curious how, how your rent collection went with, uh, with uh, your, uh, your investors uh, in, uh, in April. I guess in both in both both retail and and uh, and residential because I'm yeah. sure you have tenants on both we sides. Have, we have hundreds of of uh, res tenants and and over a hundred commercial tenants, and we will be lucky. Uh, and you know we're we're fighting every tenant on this. We're trying to get what we can, but we'll be lucky to collect fifty cents in the dollar for April, and it'll be less than May. Wow. Fifty cents yeah, on the dollar for the retail tenants. All tenants. We'll average fifty cents in the dollar for res and retail tenants and commercial tenants. We have hundreds of tenants and uh, 
the residential ones are paying, uh, are, are doing better than the commercial ones, but virtually every commercial tenant is either saying, I don't want to pay any rent or I want to rent abatement. And so, it's, it's a huge problem. So, so uh, the, obviously I'm a lender, our relationship's more on the development side, but from the, uh, the lenders who are on the retail sites that you have in place, what are the, what are those finance groups saying? Are they, are they allowing deferrals? Have you requested deferrals for where you're, uh, well, not no, getting rent. We don't. So you know, uh, it's not like I planned for COVID nineteen, but I'm Obviously. a relatively person, and uh, it, it, and I, I've always lived way, way, way below my means. So we have the ability to live through COVID uh, for a year and a half without having any serious repercussions to our business. But but uh, um, you know, and that and that's because uh, we managed to put money away and have assets that can be drawn on. But, um, and this is why, you know, we are making deals with tenants and we are trying to help out tenants as we can. Uh, we're not saying no rent, but we're saying let's make some kind of compromise and we'll figure out in the future how you pay the rest of it off. We want to keep you in business. Um, and I understand the federal government's coming with some plan to help commercial tenants. But th listen, um, the, the problem is even if we help tenants, the, the rent is just part of it, right? But you, you can't, if you're, if you figure you're doing four or 5 million as a restaurant and your margins are 4%, that's a $200,000 profit. If your rent is 40,000 or 50,000 a month, which probably is for a restaurant that size, then, then you're looking at um, a total wipeout after four months, right? If you're, if your restaurant's closed for four months, you're done. Yeah, that's, it's, it's, uh, I'm a very, very small business owner and uh, definitely not getting nearly as many calls as I, I used to. And it's, it's, you know, and I'm getting anxious and nervous and depressed. I can't imagine the people that have no work to do and, and have no idea when things are going to go back to work. And if you do go, go back to work, will there even be a service industry? Will there be people getting their haircuts? Uh, um, will they be scared to, to go out even when this, lockdown ends so it's well, part, part of the problem too is with you know you, you mentioned restaurants it's yeah okay they can open up and they can go to full capacity but at what point in time are are are, uh, are we going to go back to restaurants like we did you know brad you said like the new normal doesn't exist it's the old normal is going to come back but i mean there's going to be some fear in the market of going out in public i i'm, I'm confident but i was talking to a guy this week he said you think i'll ever you're going to catch me dead you could not catch me dead in a movie theater going forward. There's no way I'm, why would I ever go back to a German fest in movie theater? And that was sort of a telling to me being like, you know, that's true. I mean, what daily activities that we did pre COVID are we going to avoid or cut out entirely post COVID? And I think that's, you know, are people going to dine at restaurants with someone sitting, you know, 30 inches away from them, or are they going to prefer to dine with someone sitting five feet away from them potentially? I, Listen, I don't have the answer, but I do think there are going to be changes out of this. Absolutely. And I think to say that there's not going to be any changes that come from this is a little naive. Okay. I can speak for myself and I would go into a bar or a restaurant, a movie theater today, and I wouldn't be nervous about it. Now I've already had COVID and I know, I know what the symptoms were and it was a flu of medium proportion. It wasn't the worst I've had. You don't know that you have it for, had it for sure. You think you had it. Well, I'll put it this way. I, in, in February, and I did a lot of flying in, in, from, from January to February, we also hosted a big sales event where hundreds of people came from all over the, all, all stripes 
to attend the sales event. And, uh, you know, I also spent a lot of time in Spain and Portugal and Las Vegas. And I was in a lot of places uh, where there were a lot of close confines. Okay. And I spent a lot of time in airplanes. Um, and I got sick in, in, uh, in February. I had uh, a terrible fever. It took 18 hours to break. I had uh, physical ailments like body aches, headaches. Um, you know, I had, I had like, a, like flu symptoms and it broke. I got it on a Thursday. I had the fever on a Sunday and I went back to work on Monday. I didn't know at the time I had COVID, but all of my symptoms are COVID and I've never had a fever uh, like that from the flu before. So while I haven't been tested, uh, my fiance who I live with was sick for a month with similar symptoms. And she had a, a she had a, a lung issue and a coughing issue for a month. If was it she wasn't, tested? pardon me, no, was no she one, tested? nobody will test you. You can't get tested. Nobody. I, I know lots of people that had my, my most of my office had had these symptoms, and no one has been able to get tested. And the tests in the early days are are apparently only 65% accurate. But here's the thing. I'm going to tell you, I, I, know, I know a fair number of people, and I'm sure you do too, Steve. Everyone I've talked to wants to go back to work. They don't care about social distancing. And they don't, they'll go to a restaurant and they'll go to a movie. Yes, there's a certain part of the population that is very, very nervous and has bought the story the government has told us about how bad this is for everybody. But the reality is it's bad for a very, very small number of people. And if, in fact... 1,000 people have died, and I believe that number, and 3 million people or even 1 million people have infected, then it's not going to affect anybody from a statistical standpoint. It's not going to really affect many people. And so why wouldn't you go back to a bar and a restaurant? Why not? And I think that people are dying to get back. I also think people are dying to do commerce. People are dying to buy real estate and to buy cars and to go out and, and and spend money. They're sick and tired of being, you know, sequestered, looking at their wife or their kids all day long. They want to get out. And so I, I think we will go back to normal far faster. So remember this. I'm saying it first. I think we'll go back to a normal far faster than anyone is saying. And this will be forgotten, not forgotten for good, but forgotten as a, as a, uh, as, you know, I don't believe that we'll be social distancing a year from now. I don't believe we'll be afraid to fly and we'll be wearing masks. Okay, so let, let me bring that back to, uh, to, the, to the real estate topic. So you think that uh, prices will normalize in, within six months? Do you think that condo prices, uh, new, new, you're saying that we're approaching 1350, 14 up and up a foot? Are we going to go back to that in six months, or or is there going to be a dip in the new in the new uh, condo sale price and then the resale price as well? We're we going to see as many transactions, and are we going to see uh, a dip in the overall uh, cost of a new home or a, a resale home? Well, okay. So right now, most properties have been taken off the market, and there's really nothing for sale, and most transactions are at quite high prices. I haven't seen any slippage in prices on the transactions that have happened. But listen, this is all about time. If, if our governments around the world keep this quarantine for months, then it's game over for everybody. And it's, not, people, it's not that people won't want to buy real estate. They won't be able to because they won't have any fucking jobs. Right? They won't be able to buy food because the government can't keep giving them money. How many months can the government give people two or $3,000 across the entire uh, country? It's, it's preposterous. There isn't enough money in the country to do that. 
and the amount of money that's written in assets and so on is, is you know, the, the drop of, of value of hedge funds and pension funds and so on. It's got to stop. It's bigger than COVID-19. COVID-19 is a big deal. But what they've done to our economy is bigger than COVID-19. It involves 8 billion people. You know, it's not going to involve, you know, 500,000 or a million people that may die worldwide. It's going to involve 8 billion people. It's a bigger problem than COVID is alone. We need to take COVID and we need to figure out what we're going to do to keep those that need to be protected, protected. But those that don't need to be protected need to go back to work and it needs to be work as normal. We're not going to be able to hide from this virus or any other virus by quarantining ourselves at home. It's impossible. It's a virus. That's not how viruses work. So I, I, I think that we need to talk to our government and have a conversation about let's, let's talk about rationalities here, not talk about the idea that we're going to be sequestered at home for, for many more months uh, and that we're going to be social distancing through the summer. It's just not going to work. And I don't think the citizens will accept it. Yeah, I agree. So on a, on a personal level, you, you mentioned that you live uh, with your fiance and you're supposed to be getting married. Is this going to affect the, the wedding plans? Uh, no, I, well, <laughs> our plan is to get married next spring, summer. We're far enough away, I think. But, but uh, you know, I, on that subject, there's a bunch of people we know that we're supposed to get married um, this summer. This summer. Not happening now, right? Well, we could, we could all have uh, Zoom, Zoom weddings. Who wants to, you get, you know, <laughs> most people have, you know, most people unlike me have one wedding a lifetime. And, and uh, it's very important to them to have a wedding with the right memories and the right people there. I think people would rather postpone it than do that. Yeah, I agree. Actually, I've been, uh, I have a couple of clients who are in the hospitality industry, uh, some, some food and beverage, but a lot of hotels and uh, mills and inns as well. And was in, in speaking with them, uh, the general comment is that the weddings that they have had had booked for uh, this coming spring and the winter, uh, they're not going anywhere. They're just postponing. So like a lot of this, it's not like the market uh, has fallen off. It's not like people have decided not to get married or not to spend money on a wedding. They just have decided to postpone and, and pause things. So, you know, the, the sentiment a lot of, from across the board is the, the industry will be back. Those, those buyers will be back. And, uh, and they're going to spend just as much money when they get back. And if you look at owning a hotel, for example, it's not a six month or a, even an 18 month investment. You know, you're, you're going to own the hotel for 20 years. And if we have to take a six month pause, it's not in the grand scheme of things going to be that big of a deal for a lot of these, uh, the, these big operators. Um, Steve, I want to tell you something. I don't think I told you this. Uh, uh, my hotel got approved. Your hotel got approved. Yeah. What one? We, we, were, uh, we took a, um, a property on Adelaide and Morrison across from um, the park there on Brant. You know where the Ace Hotel Yeah. 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 Kind of kitty corner on, on Adelaide Street facing the park. We, yeah, yeah, the parking lot. There's a parking lot there, I think, right? Uh, that's, that's, we're on the south side facing the park. So we had four uh, buildings the city had uh, listed as a sport. And we wanted to knock them down and build a 14-story building there. And we went to Elpat. And we got the uh, we got the notice on Tuesday that we won, and we'll be right. with a 14-story, 150-room hotel. It's going to be branded a Hudson, and the SBE Group is managing it for us, uh, and it should be open in three years. 
Nice. Wow. Congrats. Thanks. Any any resin there or 100% hotel? 100% hotel. I, I remember a few years ago, you said you were thinking about starting your own hotel brand, the Bradley. What Whatever happened to that? Well, so, you know, this... I don't own 100% of this hotel. I'm one, I'm, I'm one of a couple of people that are involved. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to take through the, the land acquisition, approval, design, work with the, you know, all the folks that, that, that go into building and designing a hotel down to the selection of the towels and the soaps and the, the minibar and so on and have an have a understanding of how that worked and then have someone manage it for me uh, for, you know, it's a 10 or 20 year contract and learn the business and then I've, I've registered the Bradley. I have two sites in Toronto that will roll Bradleys. We're working on one of our sites in, in, uh, in Calgary. Um, and we have, uh, we're working on a site in Hamilton. So we, we want to roll out the Bradley. Once I understand this business, if I like it, we'll roll out uh, uh, six to eight Bradleys across Canada within the next five years. You know what would sound even better than the Bradley? The Bradley Cam. <laughs> I, think that, I think that's got a real exquisite ring to it terrible terrible <laughs> what do you mean terrible you need a partner like, so i guess you must be happy that uh, kind of airbnb is dying then if you're going to get into the hotel business well i listen I, I think i think airbnb has a place i mean if you're going to go to mexico and you want to rent a villa or a house i got i think it's great i think the problem with airbnb is if you live in a condominium building a high density condominium building and you own units and every day or every week, there's a new face in the elevator that you have no idea, no security with, and no understanding that they need to preserve and provide security with everybody, uh, then that puts your property and your life at risk. So I can't abide by that in our buildings, and I don't think the city will support that. They, they've actually created some, uh, some new laws to prevent that, and I think that's great. But I, I do believe that if you own a house and uh, – you want to rent your house out to someone and you want to go to Spain while they're in your, that's all good to me. But I don't think we should be taking uh, short-term tenancies in a building was never meant for that. Hotels are, are, are created to be rigorous, to be able to take the daily abuse of, of, of a non-owner in, in that space. Condominiums are built for one or two people typically to live in. They can't take the abuse of hundreds of people or dozens of people a month coming in and out and in, in abusing those spaces. And quite frankly, probably don't really give a shit about the building or the property or any no, amenities. Of course you don't, because listen, how many times you sat in a hotel room, drank a beer and thrown the empty beer can on the floor? You don't do that in your home. <laughs> Never. I would, for Bradley, Bradley, zero. You ever travel with, with men, uh, <laughs> you'll, you'll see what men do with the... Anyway, I, I think that... Um, you're right that, that owners and long-term tenants respect a property more than someone who's visiting from another place for a short term. They don't really understand. They haven't really, you know, they don't really think about that. They see it as a hotel room rather than someone's home. And I don't, I don't think that's a good thing. So, uh, you know, Airbnb has a place. I think it's a great business, but I don't think it's where, I don't think it should be in all the locations that it's in today. Um, so listen, this has been good. It's been, uh, we're We've had a great conversation and uh, we appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this for us. And uh, we've, we've touched on a lot. Is, is there anything else, Ben, that, that we've missed or Brad, anything else that you wanted to uh, 
to uh, to chat about before we sign off here, or any questions that uh, that we've missed from your perspective, Ben? Well, I, I, I mean, the only thing I had written down here is just just wondering why Garth Turner is so obsessed with you. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I um, Garth Turner had a a, a property, a, like a television property called Real Estate Television, back in uh, the early two thousands. And I actually sold Garth Turner's investment property on the waterfront. That's how I met him. And, uh, and right, who is Garth Turner for those of us who don't know who, who the person is? Garth Turner is a, was a former politician of some note. He Not was a feeling. minister of something under the Mulroney government. Like, I don't remember what his portfolio was, but he's, a, he's an intelligent, well-read uh, man. But he's a contrarian with real estate. And he's been... Um, he's been uh, very, very negative about real estate since about 2004, I think, about that. Yeah, that probably 15 years now. Yeah, 15 years. And, you know, he, he's been wrong in his predictions for that long. And I've kind of made it clear to people that he has been wrong about it. And I think maybe that's why he's <laughs> taken such a shine to me. But I was one of his, uh, I was on his television show. I ran a segment of his television show for two years um, as a correspondent. Wow. Um, for the real estate condominium part of the market. And uh, I think he's a smart guy. I think that he's, he's now so entrenched in this position of a contrarian that he, I don't think he can I save any face by backing off, you know? And I, I think that he, he missed the boat in Toronto. Uh, I think the ship has sailed. I, I mean, who can say what the next pandemic would be and the severity of it? And who knows what the future of mankind is with, global warming and these, 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 these outside effects that are not caused by humans necessarily, but by, you know, acts of God, so to speak, can't say what would happen with humanity with those kind of things. But if you just look at Toronto's course in the future as a city, it's very bright and uh, all things remaining equal. I don't see any reason why real estate in Toronto should depreciate for any period other than a slowdown. And after the slowdown, I think the sky's the limit. And, you know, you talk to anyone from around the world, they love Toronto, they want to visit, they want to live here. This is a real place uh, with a real future. It's a really, you know, great metropolitan city, cosmopolitan city, and we should be very proud of what we've built here as citizens and support it. It's, it's a great future, and Garth is wrong about that. Well, I think that's a perfect spot to uh, end the podcast, Stephen. Yeah. So we, uh, yeah, we want to thank you for joining us. I think it was a great conversation. And uh, Steve, you have the last word. Last word is uh, likewise, everybody out there. Uh, we will continue to, uh, to to try and keep you updated as to what's going on with uh, a new uh, episode every week and a new guest every week. Thank you so much to Brad Lamb. Um, you can catch the, the Brad Cam uh, hotels chain coming in 2023. Uh, yeah, we're going to take over the market there. It's uh, it's real exciting times and uh, stay safe out there. Um, we will be in touch. Take care and goodbye. Thanks, Brad. Okay, guys. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.